while you're taking, while you're sitting down, if you could take the um, baskets for our tithes and offerings and pass them down. If you fill out a connect card, this would be the time to stick that in the basket, and that would be greatly appreciated. Just want to uh, see you, kids. Bye. Love y'all. Get out. I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm Steve Hambrick. Good job, Ricky. Good job, man. Good game. Good game. Um, man, I got some. Yeah, I got some claps on that. One. What about me? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Totally joking. I'm Steve Hambrick, and uh, hey, I'm gonna move this for you, bro, so you can see me. Do you like that for you? I love you, man. Hey, good job for Clemson yesterday. That was a, good, it was a big game. Yeah, we played a we played a high school team yesterday, Hayden. <laughs> we finally got to win. We're a one and two. Way to go, dogs. Um, yeah, I'm the pastor here at Vintage, and uh, we're glad that you're here. And uh, it's good stuff. Hey, just introduce real quick. My buddy Scott Crawford's on the front row, sitting next to my wife. Y'all need to kind of put a line between y'all. I'm not really comfortable with the distance. I'm just kidding. Um, I've been a friend with Scott uh, and his wife Rebecca for a long time. They were. Uh, I met Scott, University of Georgia, back in uh, in the late 90s when he was uh, working on staff at Wesley one year and um, stayed good friends. And when he he went to uh, went to went to Asbury Seminary and graduated from there, and then he went to UCF to work at the Wesley Foundation. If you know my story, you know that's where I was, and I actually followed Scott. And so Scott, when he was getting ready, he and his wife get ready to move to South Africa. He called and said, man, I don't want to leave this campus ministry to a bunch of idiots. Would you come down and, and, um, and, and, and take over, you and Randall? And so we went down, followed him. And, and uh, so then from that moment on, just kind of a deeper relationship. And then he moved back to Florida, to Orlando area, and uh, became super, super good friends, accountability partners, best friends. It's one of those deals. It's always nice to have somebody who likes all of your primary hobbies like bass fishing and golfing and Georgia football, right? So it's just great to have friends like that. Scott was one of those guys. And so anyway, he's here this morning hanging out and uh, need you to pray for us. We, um, in just a little while, uh, we're going fishing together. And I need you to pray that I beat him and because uh, there's no competition here at all between us. All right, um, that's it. I can move into my next stuff. I've got all those funny jokes out of the way. And one second, funny jokes about Scott and me fishing, Georgia football. Okay, now I can move on. I'm just kidding. Hey, Barry, good job. Alatina High School had a big game uh, on, on Friday night and beat Dalton. Yes. And uh, it was a big win. So good job. All right. So last week, last week, we uh, dove into Luke 22. And if you were here, and we talked about uh, Luke 22 talks about Jesus He's super excited about taking the Passover with his, with his disciples, with his small group, right? His small group of guys, and they're going to have this moment together. It's going to be a powerful moment. They're taking, they're taking the Passover, he's taking the Passover and just turning it upside down, completely shifting it, right? To where he now, right? The body is now, the, the, the bread's now his body, and the wine represents his blood's a massive shift, kind of turning everything upside down. And, and so in that, he instituted now the communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, whatever your tradition is, whatever you called it. And it's just a massive, massive cultural shift for them. 
This is a massive moment. We can't, we can't, I, we can't understand it ourselves here, right? But it's this massive shift. And so he says it, and it's a great moment. And so it's one of those moments that when we preach about it or pastors talk about it, it becomes this moment, it becomes a real deep and sober moment. They usually change their voice and begin to talk slower with a deeper voice to talk about the moment. And so the disciples were in the moment. And they decided to celebrate it by having an argument amongst themselves about who the greatest is, right? Don't you love that moment, right? Because you recognize just how human they really are. And we celebrate that because when you hear their story, you think to yourself, dude, I could totally be in that story. It could totally be me, right? Most of you probably know that Peter and John... They didn't like one another, right? They were, in, they were incredibly competitive with one another's great rivalry about who Jesus loved the most, right? Peter didn't like John because I, I, I'm just going to read way between the lines right here, okay? Just forgive me. Don't take this and start preaching it. But I think, you know, Peter's a little bit older. He's a little bit more wise, and he's this natural-born leader, and John's just a lover, Right? Hey, Peter, Jesus loves me more. Watch this. I'm going to lay back on his, I'm gonna lay back on his chest over here. Dare you he to do it, right? Peter's like, oh, my gosh. And they just hold back and forth. Well, he likes me more because he put me in charge of stuff. Yeah, but he likes to hang out with me more, right? And this whole dialogue back and forth about who. So there's this, there's this competition going on here. And, so and we know it because they're sitting here literally having a dispute among them about who the greatest is and probably about who Jesus is going to pick to lead beside him when he really raises himself up as the Messiah, right? This military figure who's going to be the take over and be king, right? And so John and Peter are probably going at it and, and Peter's like, well, I'm a better leader. And he's going to go, well, Jesus just loves me more. So take that, right? There's a whole back and forth, forth thing going on right in the middle of the Lord's Supper. Do you imagine if we took that one like we did last Sunday, we took it and you walked back to your chair and started debating with your wife about who Jesus loved more? How awkward would that be, right? And that's what they're doing. They're having that moment. And just right here in the spa, just having this argument about who the greatest is. And Jesus looks at them. And again, we're going to look at it a little bit deeper in a few minutes. But just kind of paraphrasing, we said, Jesus looked and said, listen, guys, I just modeled for you something that I want you to do. I'm not wanting you to be the leader of leaders over here in the, the pinnacle right here. Everyone looking to you. I want you to strive to be the servant of all. I'm not, I don't want you to strive towards being better than everyone else, right? With rivalry, competition, and individualism. I want you to strive towards service and servanthood. Peter, I want you to serve John. And John, I want you to serve Peter. I'm calling you to, to, to live this lifestyle. It's what I've modeled for you, right? And so he sits there. And, and, the, and we talked about last week the reality of why this is important. is because service always leads to unity among people, right? If I sit down, and if I, if I, if I choose one day that I'm going to serve the Freemans over here, Greg and Julie, I'm going to literally, I'm going to come to your house every morning. That's what I'm going to do. I'm gonna, you're going to give me a key because you trust me. And I'm going to walk in. I'm not going to come to your bedroom because that would be weird, right? But I am going to go to the kitchen, right? I'm going to have a bell. And I'm going to make you breakfast 
every morning, right? Do you like scrambled eggs? Can you do that? Like some bacon, sausage patty, or links better? You like patties or links? Patties, yeah. Sausage patties are a lot better, right? So I'm going to make that for you every morning, and I'm going to I'm not going to ring a cowbell because it's just really obnoxious, right? I'm going to serve you by giving the right that that type of bell. So you wake up to this nice jingle and smell of patted sausage. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? I had your paper waiting for you. Your coffee's waiting there for you, too, right? It'd be fantastic because I'm going to then serve them every day. Do you think they would like me? Yes, of course, right? You're going to, because if I say that of your way, I serve you and then get out of the way, right? Because you've got to have time to yourself and that kind of stuff, right? I'd make it for you, too, Jordan, just so you know, bro, okay? Good. So I'd make it for Jordan, too. So anyway, so I'm having this moment of serving them, and all of a sudden they really like me. Why? Because I'm serving them. And so every single one of us, we love to be served in life. And so Jesus is coming and saying, listen, if you will choose a life of servanthood and serving one another, guess what happens? Unity will occur among you. Your competition, your rivalry, and your individualism will die because you're choosing to serve one another. And Jesus, being able to have a little foreshadowing, a little foreknowledge, recognizes that unity is an imperative for them. Why? Because the world is about to hate them because of his name. And he recognizes that if they are not unified, but they live divided, then they will crumble and they will fail. So we see Jesus die. We see Jesus come back a few days later. And what do we, what do we find? We find the disciples at the, at the mandate of Jesus in Jerusalem together in the upper room praying together, unified together for this common purpose of going after the Holy Spirit who Jesus promised. And then guess what happens? Unified together, hopefully serving one another as they pray together, the Holy Spirit descends. And we said last week, if you're one of those revival people, then don't just go and pray for revival by yourself in your room all by yourself, but unify together by serving one another and praying together, together. Then when you do that, something happens in unity. God says, God pour, God, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace. His blessing, His anointing, all of His stuff, He gives grace to the humble who come together by serving one another. If you want to see God do something great here at Vintage, begin by making, it a, making a choice to serve extravagantly in the lives of one another. But by nature, we struggle with this, don't we? We struggle with the idea of service because, well, because I'm going to blame our forefathers. I'm going to blame Thomas Jefferson, right? I'm going to blame Thomas Jefferson and Sam Adams and Ben Franklin and George Washington, all these guys. I'm going to blame them. Now, not really, but I could in some sort of fashion because of this. Our forefathers, they created these wonderful documents. How many of you love the Constitution? You need to raise your hand, right? If you're a good American, then you'll love the Constitution, right? If you're part of the Tea Party, raise your hand, right? You'll love the Constitution, right? It's all about the Constitution. We, we love the Declaration of Independence because we were being so, like we talked about a few weeks ago, right? We've been so, we're so oppressed by the English, right? We were so oppressed. They were the bad guys, right? Now, they really weren't the bad guys. They were just doing what they knew, right? But we didn't like them because we, we wanted cheaper tea, 
Let's just be honest. We liked our tea. We don't like it now. We like coffee, but we liked tea back then, right? And we wanted to, there's lots of other reasons, but you know what I'm getting at. So our forefathers came and they began to write these documents stuff, and they, they wrote the Declaration of Independence, where the, it's rocket science, they're declaring their independence, okay? So anyway, they're, they're just declaring this desire for independence, this pulling away and this whole stuff, and they wrote this, all this stuff up, and they wrote this. It should be familiar to all of you who have ever taken a class in government, whatever it may be. It says this. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men, I'm going to create, I'm going to say women, that all men and women are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, as an American who loves his country, I sit here today and say, I cherish this statement. I cherish our Constitution. I cherish the Declaration of Independence. I cherish everything about it and what it means for us. I really do. But I'm going to push back on it for a moment, not for a political, political reasons, but I'm going to push back on it for a kingdom purpose. Because what I want to say is this, is this statement is incomplete. In the eyes of the kingdom, in the eyes of God, the gospel of Jesus, I believe this statement is incomplete. Okay? So let me push back on this a little bit. When breaking down our forefathers' statement, what I find is I find a focus, I find a focus, at least in how we interpret it, on individual rights. So we come and we talk about saying all men and women, they are individually important, right? Their lives are important. This is true. And each of us, we have the right to life, and that is true. And each of us as a person has a right to liberty or to, to be free and not a slave to anyone or anything, and that is true. And each of us has the right to pursue our own happiness, right? We don't have to be told what to do. We have the freedom to go after Jesus and the happiness we find in Him if we want to, right? We have the, the right to freedom of religion. We can do what we want to do that causes joy, complete joy and happiness in us. We can go after those things. And, and this is true. But where I think that we missed it as a country is this. We took this and we made it hyper-individualistic, right? The forefathers, when they wrote it, they actually wrote it to, for all the colonies, right? It was, a, it was a whole group of people, right? And they, was, and they had the, the whole group of people in mind. But when we read it, we interpret it in a very selfish, individualistic way, right? Saying, well, listen, I have the right to life, right? I have the right to be free. I have the right to do, to pursue happiness and do what makes me happy, right? So how many of you ever said, you know, when you were a kid growing up, right? Your parents are like, you can't do that. And you're like, it's a free country. You ever said that? You're a kid or said, I can do whatever I want, right? You, someone, you know, someone says, you can't do that. And your first says, no, no. I have rights. I have the right to freedom. I'm free to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it, right? And we get very frustrated when, law, when people who are making laws infringe upon our rights. So we do sit-ins, right? And a lot of these things are good. A lot of these things are true, right? It is true that we, God has endowed us with these rights, and it's very true. But when we take them and we make them hyper-individualistic, what happens is we become all about self. And I become all about me and my rights 
and my right, my right to life and my freedom and my happiness. And it's all about me and I don't want to think about you anymore. Now, that's not what our forefathers meant. That's why I say it's incomplete. Because if we take that out to its nth degree without keeping anyone else in mind, then that's where it leads us. And so as a culture then, and as a people, and I think that all of you would recognize, I'm just describing our culture, that we are all hyper-individualistic, we are all hyper-competitive, right? We're all about ourselves all the time. Because it just defines us. Now, Ephesians chapter 6 Verse 11, it's a very familiar verse. We've read it several times over the last couple of months. It says this, chapter 6, verse 11 says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Okay? Put on the full armor of God. Why? Because, hey, listen, there is a real enemy that's moving against us, right? Yes, we have people who are enemies and we have countries and stuff, but there is literally spiritually in someone who is opposed to God. And therefore, because he's opposed to God, he's opposed to us, right? We call him devil, we call him Satan, we call him man, whatever you want to call him, right? There is a real spiritual enemy attacking us, moving against us all the times. And what Paul says is this enemy, he has schemes. He has schemes. Now, the word schemes is taken from the Greek word methodeia. Methodea. Methodea has in mind this idea of craftiness, of cunningness, and deception, right? That he uses deception as his primary tool in coming against us and coming against the church. Now, you know how someone who's cunning and who is, uses deception works, right? They don't just hit you in the face with something. They kind of, like... They kind of move slow, right? Gradual baby steps, right? And so what it's saying is that's the idea of scheme, that there's like, there's a plan A, and a step one, step two, and step three, and a step four, and a step five in our lives, right? That in our lives that, that try to steal us away. When we look at this idea, this hyper-individualism, we see it expressed in lots of different ways in our life. And I want you to hear this, because I'm about to, about to describe what happens to many of us, to many of us in our lives. We're sitting there doing something, and what happens? Someone says something to us or about us, or some, we hear someone say that someone said something about us, right? And our first, because we're good Christians, we know our first response will be to forgive them, right? Oh, man, God, I can't believe they said that. I'm going to have to forgive them. But at the same time as the thought, of, listen, the same time as the thought of forgiveness is over here, you have that other voice over here saying, but you have rights. They just infringed upon your rights. How dare they say that about you? Do they know who you are? Do they know how great you really are? Do they know, they know how, I mean, how you helped them last week and all they're doing over here now is talking bad about you? They're, they're, not even, they're not even grateful. I can't believe how ungrateful they are. They probably think I'm a jerk. They probably hate me. And you, you, know how, you know how your mind works, right? Something happens and you find yourself in this gradual process of taking steps all the way to the end right here going, if I see them, I'm going to beat them up. That's what you do, right? You know you won't do it because you're a good Christian. But inside of your mind, and then you write them off. Well, I'm not going to be their friend anymore. And we find ourselves, and the enemy moves that way, doesn't he? He moves that way in your job. Someone's over here and... 
They're, they're being crafty and cunning, trying to subvert you to climb the ladder of success over here. You're like, I'm not going to. And you're sitting over there. You're, oh, my gosh, maybe the boss likes them more. What am I going to do? And it even happens with our spouse, right? How, I can't believe she said that to me. Does she know me? I came home early today from work to be with our girls, and she's telling me I'd do nothing in our house. This never happens in our house. She never lets me go fishing. How dare her? It makes me a better husband. He does say that. I do. Now, you see where I'm going. You can follow that logic out for your own life, right? Whoever it is, whoever speaks into your life. And you know, think about the, this, the lives of people that you used to be friends with who are not anymore. Your sister who you were close to here and not close to anymore. How, and, and you sit back and you go, how did we find ourselves divided a lot of times? And we find ourselves the scheme of the enemy to come in and to stir in this way, right? The seed plants. It's a scheme of the enemy. He causes deception. Listen, I would say one of the greatest... Listen, this is important for some of you to know. One of the greatest schemes of the enemy, his metodea of deception in our lives, is to make you think that he is stronger than he really is. Because when you think about the enemy, you think of God and the enemy like on an even playing field in your life. You think about the power of sin being so strong in your life, completely forgetting that the enemy was created and you are now worshiping the Creator and the Creator actually now lives in you, which means you actually have more power than the very enemy that you're fighting against, even though he is smart, right? But you have the Creator who's part of your life and he's deceiving you every day by all these movies that you see where the enemy is so strong the priest can't even do little crucifix to get the, get the enemy out, right? You have all this stuff. He's so bad and he's so strong and he's really just not. He deceives us into thinking he's bigger than he actually is. And there has to be an awakening there, right? He moves in deception, method day in our life. And so there's all these schemes of how the enemy is moving against us. And I believe that one of the primary schemes the enemy is using in our culture is this hyper-individualism of my life, my, my pursuit of happiness, my liberties, and my freedom that then keep me from serving those that I'm around every day. So what I want to do this morning, I want to take a look at two specific scriptures that are both familiar. One, because we looked at it last week, we already named it this morning. And second, because it's just familiar if you've been a part of church ever at all in your life. The first scripture is this, Luke 22, 24 through 27. I just named it a few minutes ago. It says this, a dispute, remember I talked about it, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Basically, people who are above somebody else, more important than somebody else. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the great, listen, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? I'm among you as one who serves. I'm not aspiring 
for this greatness over here. I'm not aspiring to be better than you. I'm actually here. I'm aspiring to be a servant. What Jesus, I believe, is, is, is painting a picture of here is, is simply this. He's painting a picture of how, listen, of how we're called to view ourselves every day. How we are to view ourselves in the context of how we live life in people that we're around every day and how we're supposed to be living our lives in the context of our work and how we're living in the context of our families and our relationships with our spouse and, and how we're supposed to be relating to our neighbors. And he's saying, listen, you're not aspiring to be right. Hear that. You're not aspiring to be right as if you can lord it over that person, you're not aspiring to be greater than, you're, not, you're aspiring to simply come alongside and serve just like I have done. And everything in us revolts against that because of our rights and our life and our freedom and our happiness. So, Jesus says, listen, I'm, this is the part I would say. Jesus says it's incomplete to say that you seek your own life, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. I'm calling you to serve others so that you can come alongside and those who are in death, you can give them life. And those who are, those who are bound, you can set them free. And those who are struggling on this, under the sentence of death and living life depressed, you can release them into the joy of God and the happiness found in his presence. That's what we're called to. So we see that expressed in Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. This is familiar because it's the Great Commission. If you've ever been in church ever, they've pulled this out and they've made you feel guilty. So you better do this or else, right? So verse 18 in Matthew 28 says, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Stop. Jesus is making a point. Hey, guys, I want you to know I'm speaking on behalf of God. Therefore, go. I've spoken authority. I have the right to say it. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus comes along, right, in the second set of verses, and he gives the Great Commission. And basically what he's laying out here, I want you to hear me say this. This is important. For every single person in this room who goes and reads all the books about your calling or your purpose, or you sit there and go, God, why did you make me? Why am I here? It's really, really clear. He gives a vocation, a job, our primary responsibility to every single person in the church. He says, listen, your primary calling for every single one of you is exactly the same. So don't, don't freak out on me. You don't have to worry. You're called to go make disciples. You're called to go every day and to invest yourself into, in relationship with the people that you were around for the purpose of introducing them to Jesus, of being Jesus, of leading them to Jesus. And so he says here in this moment, he's saying, listen, I want your call and vocation is to live every day of your life investing yourself into people so that they will become my follower. This is the thing that's interesting here. A lot of you think that discipleship begins at the moment that someone gives their life to Christ. Wrong. Discipleship begins the moment you enter into a relationship with someone. 
whether they know Jesus or not. Every day I'm called to be Jesus to my unbelieving friends and my believing friends, right? That I'm in, intentionally investing into their lives to either to show them Jesus and to show them the love of Jesus, to shape them. Listen, do you realize that when Christians hang out with non-Christians with an intentional purpose of being Jesus to them, then non-Christians ultimately in time end up becoming more like Jesus every day? They become more like him until the actual day they meet him. Because when a person is around someone who loves Jesus and Jesus is oozing off of them, they can't help but be affected by it. I've sat with people and they look at me after they're just sitting there drunk out of their mind and they're sitting there like, oh, I just want what you have, right? And I'm like, it's Jesus, right? I'm leading them to Jesus. I'm discipling in the moment of their drunkenness as I love them where they are, but live my life separated from their vices in a place of holiness. Discipleship is life. Whether they don't know Jesus and they're atheists are far away from him and I'm loving them to him or someone who's been with Jesus all their life and they need someone to invest in them so they can become like Christ. They can become little Christ's. Having to know that's what the word Christian means. It means little Christ. Are you laughing at me, Austin? Yeah, that's good. That's funny, right? Jerk. All right. No, seriously, the word Christian just means little Christ. Little Christ. It was a kind of a condescending term, but they adopted it. Hey, it's a pretty cool word. We want to be little Christ. We want people, when they see us, we know we can't ever aspire to be God, but we can aspire to be like him, to reveal him. And so they embrace this call to be little Christ. And so the call was made in the saying, hey, listen, your vocation in life, your vocation in life is to invest your life in discipleship where you invest every day into people so they can know the love of Jesus, so they can be invested into by you and ultimately lead them to greater Christ likeness, whether they need to become Christians or they already are. And we give our lives to this. Listen, Matthew 28, verse 18 and 20 is not about evangelism. Because evangelism represents a moment, a proclamation in the moment where I say, hey, let me share Jesus, let me preach the gospel, let me share the gospel with you. Evangelists, they blow in, they blow up, and they blow out. That's what they do, right? Evangelists, they blow in, Jesus, they blow up with Jesus, and they blow out. And they leave us to the actual work of Matthew 28. Discipleship is a lifestyle. It's not an event. It's every day, and evangelism will be part of it, but it's just, it's not a moment, right? This is talking about a lifestyle, a vocation where I'm giving myself, and how do I do it? By serving one another, doing what Jesus did, and by loving them, right? Taking my life, my liberty, my pursuit of happiness, and, and doing the exact same thing, going to people and helping them in their place, being Jesus, loving them. C.S. Lewis said it this way, it is easy to think, that the church has a lot of different objects to devote its attention to. Education, to building, to missions, to holding services, to small groups I had to worship, right? Hanging out, doing whatever. But the church exists for nothing else but to draw men and women into Christ, to make them into little Christs. If they are not doing that, then all the cathedrals, all the clergy, all the missions, all the sermons... Even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man 
for no other purpose than to lead us into becoming like little Christs. Vintage, vintage is about being a people who disciple one another. You need to be Peters investing into your Timothys. Some of you need to be Timothys who are being invested into by Paul's. We need to be in this place of always either investing like Paul and Peter did or, or, or being invested into. We need to be living this lifestyle of Matthew 20 of discipleship and investing into other people, whether they are atheists or whether they've been Christians since they were two. Always investing, always speaking life, always shaping, always calling people to greatness as they become like little Christs. This is our call. So, here's what we're going to, this is the foundation we're going to launch from for the next several weeks. And here's your homework, all right? I want you to write these things down. This is what I'm asking you to do this week. Homework. Read the entire Bible. I'm just kidding. All right. Number one. Number one. Ask God to reveal the schemes of the enemy in your life. Okay? Ask God to reveal the schemes of the enemy in your life. Just leave that up there for me until I get to the next one. We want to do that, right? We want to say, God, schemes are deceptive by nature, so we don't even know when the enemy is moving, right? And so, God, would you simply open my eyes? Would you open my eyes, God, to be aware of where the enemy is moving? Remember, Jesus did this to the rich young ruler. Remember how he did it? Rich young ruler came and said, Jesus, what must I do to be your disciple? And he says, hey, have you, have you obeyed all the commandments? And he's like, I've done it since I was a child, right? He's like, fantastic, fantastic, right? And he looks at him and he, and he looks beyond and he recognizes the scheme of the enemy. He says, actually, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take everything that you own and I want you to sell it all and I want you to give it to the poor. Jesus put his finger on the scheme, the deceptive work of the enemy in his life. And the rich and ruler walked away sad. Why? Because he was a wealthy man. He had been deceived into thinking that this will actually belong to him, these resources. He actually had bought into the lie that he, that he needed it more than anyone else. And he walked away sad. And Jesus said, how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's like a camel going to the eye of a needle. Right? This is difficult. But he calls out the deceptive work of the enemy speaking into his life. Second thing you need to ask, second part of the homework is this. Ask God, remember, especially you see him, I'm calling you to hang out with Jesus, right? Ask God to awaken in you his heart for serving others. Ask God to awaken in you his heart for serving others. Because, listen, it's not natural, right? It was natural pre-fall. In the first couple of chapters of Genesis, fantastic. I want to serve my wife every day. But man, as soon as the fall happens there in Genesis 3, what happens? I don't want to serve her anymore. I want to be all about me and my life and my freedoms and my pursuit of happiness. I want to go fishing when I want to go fishing because I want to go fishing, right? This is a whole thing going on. It's not natural for us. And we have to literally sit down and say, God, I want to die to this selfish, individualistic, rivalistic, I made that word up, right? Competitive part of me. 
And God, I want to embrace servanthood because I know it's your heart. I want to do what you've modeled. I need your help. So ask him for it. And the third thing, I want want you to sit down and process, and I want you to ask yourself who you are discipling. I want you to ask yourself, who are you discipling? Who are you investing into every day or once a week, depending on your connection, so that they may become little Christs? They may become like Jesus, that they may know him, fall more in love with him because of the way that you're investing into their life in being Jesus to them, right? Taking your life in Jesus, your freedom you found in Christ, and your joy and happiness found in relationship with him and sharing it so that others can be set free into that themselves. Who are you discipling? Who are you discipling? Now, at Vintage, we said last week that one of the ways that we're helping and facilitate relationship and, and servanthood and community and unity is by our small groups and our LTG groups. And so we said last week we focused on small groups, which we're doing this morning. And, and our small group leaders are going to be outside on the sidewalk again. They're going to be out there signing up. People want to encourage you. We, you need to be in relationship with other people. There's no way that your heart of service in unity can be birthed in your life unless you're doing life with other people, right? Because you can't serve people unless you're in relationship with people, I'm just saying, right? And so you have to be in relationship with people. It's a good, great, safe place for you to die to your selfish, individualistic, hyper-competitive nature and actually serve one another, so that you can then leave your four walls of the house that you're in or vintage on Sunday morning and go do it for your neighbors so they can actually be, they can learn about Jesus. John 17 has an incredible picture. Jesus is praying. He says, I pray that they may be unified in one Father as you and I are one so that the world will know that I'm with them and that they are in me. Basically what he said was, God, I pray that they would have the same type of unity that you and I have. It's pretty close, right? Because when that happens, listen, when that happens, the world will actually be drawn to Christians and want to be with them, want to hang out with them, and want to be like them. It's amazing. And unless we embrace this life of servanthood, which leads to unity, and the Holy Spirit can't be poured out through us to those who actually need him. So, that's what I'm asking you to do this morning. Do your homework. Sign up for a small group. We have lots of other sign-up stuff to do. Listen, if, uh, if you love Jesus, you'll sign up for an outreach. Thank you. No, seriously, if you, I want all of you, we want all of you, everybody at Vintage to be connected, uh, getting involved in these outreaches. It's going to be life-giving and powerful, so please make that happen. It'll be great. A couple, uh, we're about to go into ministry time, so Ricky, you can go ahead and come with your cool hat. And, and here's this. We have, and we have ministry time. We have our ministry team leaders, and they come up, and they love to pray for you, right? If you come and say, Steve, I just need someone to come alongside of me today and just pray for me. That's going to be really hard for me to die to this. I need it. Then that's great. They can come along. They can come alongside of you in a, in a, in a moment of serving you by praying for you and loving on you. So we want to make that happen. Number two, uh, we got convicted about not, being able to, not offering um, communion on a, on a regular basis. So, so what we decided to do is we have the elements over here.
And so every Sunday they're going to be available to you. And in time of ministry, if you want to come and just be, whether it's with you and your family or just you by yourself, you can come forward as an act of ministry and an act of devotion before the Lord. And you can take communion together as a family. If you want to invite somebody else into that who's all by themselves and doesn't have a family here, grab them. Make them part of your spiritual family and bring them over. That happened to me when I was in college. This family I didn't know, this little rinky-dink church in Valdosta, Georgia. I happened to be there probably Shane Barber. And I walk in, they grab me and bring me over and they serve me communion. And it, it wrecked me in a moment. Right? It's a form of ministry is blessing me and speaking into my life. And so we're going to have that available to you all every Sunday so you can come. My only ask this, you come to the table and take it. Don't stand there because people are behind you. All right? So take it and move over to the side and you can let the Lord minister to you so the next person can come. Okay? All right, let me pray for you. You guys have a great week and we love you. Jesus, you're great and we love you. We thank you for your presence with us this morning. We're simply asking... Jesus, that you would do this thing only you can do, God, which is to raise up a heart of service in us, God, by awakening us to the schemes of the enemy. And I pray, Jesus, for grace this morning to love those that we've always deemed unlovable. Pray that again, Jesus. I pray, God, that you would give us grace this morning to love all of those people that we've always just said were unlovable, the people who've offended us, people who've hurt.